together, and as we do, would you please pray for me? I've been struggling with a cold, and um, it's a little hard to talk, you know? So I need strength. And I also need wisdom. I mean, need clarity. Well, I need a whole lot of things. So, <laughs> Lord, we thank you that we can come to you. We thank you that we have a great Savior, Jesus, who has ascended into the heavenlies and is praying for us. And so as we bow before you, we are thankful that you're aware of all of our needs. We pray that you would bless your word to us. We ask that you help us to find our life in Christ and to trust you to live your life through us. We ask that you enable us to trust you more and serve you better. And in the process, make, you, make us like yourself, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. One kilogram equals? 2.2 Very good. And one gallon equals? 3.78 liters. And I wasn't cheating. 7.85 liters. And six, one half dozen the other. And one mile is? 1.6 kilometers. Oh, you are good. One mile is 1.6 kilometers. Those are all conversions, right? But what about a sinner being converted to a saint? That's a whole different kind of conversion. It's not one that we just snap off our fingers like that. It takes the work of God's spirit. And we're going to look at Saul's conversion this morning, and as we do, I hope that you will be asking yourself this question. Have I been converted? And if your answer is yes, then I hope you'll also be asking yourself the question, to what extent am I giving myself to serve those that have yet to be converted? We're looking at the section that we just read, Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 31. If you have a Bible, uh, if you're using one of the Bibles in front of you, I believe it's page 917. So Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 31. Now, up to this point in the book of Acts, the Lord, uh, Luke has given us some bits and snatches about Saul. Not very much information, a little bit. And in these verses, we take a deeper dive into his life and found out, find out about how he was converted. Luke seems to be focusing this narrative on that question. How does the Lord actually save those who will serve him? And his answer, uh, I think, is along these lines. The Lord leads us where he wants us to go so that we can be a blessing where he wants us to be. What's the Lord do when he converts somebody? He leads us where he wants us to go so that we can be a blessing where he wants us to be. And uh, as you just let your eyes flow down through that passage, I hope you'll see, first of all, that um, we have a look at the human heart in verses one through two, one and two, and then Luke goes on to talk about uh, 
how God limits our sin. It's a wonderful truth. And uh, then how he surrounds us with other believers and how he gives power and opportunity to serve the Lord. So please look at verses 1 and 2. They tell us that Paul is still breathing out threats against the church. And what we want to glean from this is left unchecked, your heart will take you from bad sin to worse sin. Look at Paul's life. We're told that he still wanted to harm Christians. It wasn't enough that Stephen has been put to death. He still has this desire for more. And so we're told in chapter 8, verse 3, that he continues to ravage the church. But beyond that, now look at verse 2, he develops in his own mind and then initiates a plan to extend his violence to Damascus. Damascus, it's about 170 miles, 75 miles north and um, east of Jerusalem. The journey that on foot took about six days. And Saul goes to the high priest and he obtains arrest warrants. You'll see that in verse 2. And so this is not some kind of random burning and looting. Rather, it is a sophisticated, officially authorized persecution that he hopes to continue. And isn't this what we see in Saul instructive about the nature of sin? Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and incurably sick. And Jesus said, it's out of the heart that comes things like evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and bearing false witness and slander. Clearly, sinners need to be converted because of what's in their hearts. They need to be changed from the inside. And this is how sin works. I'm tempted. I give in to it. And I find some pleasure in it. And then the temptation comes back. And what happens as I continue to give in to my temptations? It's in effect what we find in Romans chapter 1. The Lord says to his people, you like sin by the ounce? Here, try it by the pound. You like it by the pound? Try it by the hundredweight. You like it by the hundredweight? Try it by the ton. See if you can satisfy yourself with more sinning upon more sinning. Can you think of any examples in your life or in the lives of people you know, friends, family, where you see that kind of growing pattern of people giving in to sin again and again? If you want one example that's been in the news recently, look at Alex Murdoch, uh, an attorney in, I believe, South Carolina. He's just recently convicted of murdering his wife and his son. And 
in testifying in his own defense, he said something like this, that he was taking drugs, so many drugs, that it made him paranoid, and so he lied to the authorities. And also moved him to steal millions of dollars from clients and from his own company. Richard is another example. He's a uh, man who had three little kids and grew mushrooms for a living and also built houses on the side. He liked to drink too much. And so one day, drunken, went out, stole a 50-gallon drum of chemicals to use in his mushroom house and was apprehended, and his drink got the better of him. And he lost his family, and he lost his house, and he lost his life from cirrhosis of the liver and its complications. So let's just pause here and ask ourselves this question. What would motivate Saul to pursue his murderous path? Well, on the surface, we might say it was misguided zeal. However, he takes us below the waterline of his life in the book of Philippians, chapter 3. And he tells us he was a thoroughgoing Israelite. He was a Pharisee, orthodox of orthodox. He studied under a learned teacher. And he was committed in the extreme to doing what he thought was right, dotting every I, crossing every T. From his pre-Christian perspective, Saul was somebody who had it all and probably would have said about himself, he had it all together. He'd point to his track record. Do you want to know? Look at it. Undoubtedly, he knew the Ten Commandments. And somehow, in his own twisted mind, he could affirm Jewish truth on the one hand and kill Christians on the other. Well, thankfully, the Lord leads us where he wants us to go so we can be the blessing he wants us to be. And the next section begins to flesh that out and just show us the power of God's grace in people's lives. So look at verses 9 and following now. Thankfully, the Lord will not let you go uh, as far as you want in your sin. He intervenes, and that's what we find in this next section. This is true for followers of Christ, but it is not true for those that do not trust in Christ as their Savior. In their case, the Lord gives unbelievers over to their sin, and those sins take them all the way to hell. So, Saul thinks he's going to Damascus to arrest Christians, and in fact, God is going to arrest him. 
The Lord turns uh, this human mission of hate into what we might call a um, heavenly mission of grace. So we're told. Verses 3 and 4. The Lord stops Saul in his tracks with a blinding light from heaven. He would never have awakened that morning thinking, oh, I'm going to Damascus. I'm going to be brought, I'm going to be stopped dead in my track. He wouldn't have guessed that for anything. But that's what the Lord does. And he reveals himself, Saul, Saul. And then he exposes Saul's sin. He says, why are you persecuting me? And in those words, what Jesus is doing is he's saying, look, Saul, when you persecute my church, that is violence against me. Why are you doing it? And then in his grace, the Lord directs Saul to a new beginning. And you see it there in verses six and following. Can you think of any time when the Lord stopped you in your sin? You're going along a certain path and you're liking it and maybe not so much liking it at the same time. It's funny. Uh, you're going along this path, and out of the blue, the Lord does something, and he keeps you from committing more sin. I can, and when I think about it, it makes me shudder inside. Uh, shudder in embarrassment and shame on the one hand, but shudder also in gratefulness because the Lord has stopped me. And I'm so glad he hasn't given me over to my sin. Well, so far what we've seen is, uh, left unchecked, your sin will take you from bad sinning to worse sinning. And thankfully, the Lord will let you go only so far before he intervenes. And that's because in the conversion process, the Lord is leading us on a path so that we can be the blessing that he wants us to be. Well, so now let's look a little more closely at this notion of, transition, uh, of conversion. It's right there in uh, 9 uh, and 10 through 19. God positions believers to share their faith in Christ with those he intends to save. Do you see it? God positions believers to share their faith in Christ with those he intends to save. So God plans the meeting. It's right there in verses 10 through 12. He calls to Ananias, not the Ananias of uh, Acts chapter 5, by the way. He calls to Ananias, who is a follower of Jesus in Damascus, and he says, Ananias. I got an assignment for you. And Ananias says, here I am, Lord. You can imagine Ananias being pretty excited. The Lord just speaks to him. Oh, the Lord's got big things in mind for me. And then the Lord says, go find a man named Saul. He's had a vision of you coming to him so that he can receive his sight. Well, Ananias is not so sure now. And I think this has got to be one of the funniest passages in the whole Bible. What possible problems can Ananias have with God's plan? Well, he says, look at verses 13 and 14. 
Christians know that Saul is an evil man. His reputation has preceded him to Damascus. And the word is out that he has come to round up believers. Now, to complicate things, the Lord has just told Ananias that Saul has seen a vision of him. Uh, Translated, he's got a picture of him in his cell phone. And what if Saul happens to recognize Ananias as being a Christian? It is a very bad idea from the perspective of Ananias. But since he's God, the Lord has the last word. You see it? Verses 15 and 16. Ananias, you don't really have the picture. I've chosen Saul for some very special work. He's going to take my name to Gentiles and kings and to the sons of Israel. And I'm going to show him how much he will have to suffer for my name's sake. In other words, the Lord has an agenda for Saul that's bigger than anything Ananias could possibly have imagined. And the Lord has given Ananias the privilege of getting in on this amazing action. And so, verses 17 to 19, the Lord converts Saul and as we're talking about conversion, what's in view here is turning him around 180 degrees. He just goes the opposite direction. Ananias goes to Saul, he lays his hand on him, and, and he greets him, and he says, the Lord has sent him so he can receive his sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit, and immediately there are, as it were, scales that fall from his eyes, and now he can see, and he's baptized, and he eats, and he regains his strength. Imagine the story Ananias had to tell when he went home for supper that night. Amazing. Mary went off to Hartwick College as a freshman and a new believer. Through a friend, she became part of a campus ministry there. And the leaders, Roy and Janet Swanson, they said to her, now, Mary, you need to look for opportunities to tell other people on this campus about Jesus. Look for ways that you can share your faith. Uh, and Mary later confessed, I had a hard time selling Girl Scout cookies. I was not up to this business of taking the initiative to share my faith with anybody. Well, realizing her timidity, Roy and Janet said to her, uh, why don't you do this? Why don't you just pray about it? Tell the Lord you want to be faithful in sharing your faith. You want to talk to other people about Jesus, but he's going to have to help you. And she agreed, and I don't know how much she prayed about it, but not too much because she confessed, after I'd forgotten about this, one night, as I was in my dorm room, there was a timid knock on the door. And another co-ed student I hardly knew sheepishly came in and said, I, I was just wondering if I could talk to you about God. And Mary was dumbfounded. 
the Lord would do this, he would answer my prayer and bring this student, and she shared the gospel with her. And that was the beginning of a life of seeking out opportunities to share Christ. After she graduated from college, she joined what was then called Campus Crusade for Christ, now Crew Ministries, and uh, did it for this reason. I want to be in an environment where I'm trained and challenged to share my faith with others. Now go back to the Lord's directive to Ananias. What possible problems might you have with God's plan that you reach out to others he intends to save? Can you think of any? Maybe like Mary would say, oh, I, I couldn't sell Girl Scout cookies. I'm just too shy. It's not my kind of thing. Uh, does that make sense? I'm too shy. Well, the question is not your ability, but rather your availability. What does it mean to live by faith? We take God at his word, and we walk in obedience to him regardless of how we feel. Isn't that what saving faith is about? And isn't that the normal path of the Christian life? Trusting the Lord moment by moment to lead us in a path so that we can be a blessing to others. Well, we've seen so far that left unchecked, your heart will take you from bad sin to worse sin. And thankfully, the Lord intervenes in the life of his own to keep you hemmed in so you won't pursue the full extent of your love for sin. And now what we see is that God positions believers to share their faith with those he intends to save. And this is all because... The Lord leads us where he wants us to go so we can be a blessing that he wants us to be. Now we're going to look at the amazing grace that makes all this a reality. Uh, verses 19 and following. The Lord has given you the power of the Holy Spirit and opportunities to tell other people about Jesus. To tell others that Jesus is the Son of God. To tell, to tell others that Jesus can change their lives and deliver them from their bondage to sin. So look at verse 19. After spending some time with the disciples at Damascus, Saul immediately proclaims Jesus in the synagogues and he announces Jesus is the Son of God. Further, he proves that Jesus is the Christ, we're told, in verse 22. And then, after many days, the Jews can't take too much more of this. And so they concoct a plot to kill him. And Saul's disciples put him in a basket, down through a hole in the wall, and he escapes and goes back the 175 miles to Jerusalem. Returning there... He tries to join the disciples, but they're a little apprehensive. We know about your track record, Saul. You're just trying to snooker us into being persecuted. We're not having it. And so the Lord then sends Barnabas 
who paves the way so that he can be assimilated now into the fellowship of Christians in Jerusalem. Paul continues to preach in the name of Jesus until it's too much for the Jews there to take. And they try to kill him. And so his Christian brothers ship him off to Caesarea and then back home to his town of Tarshish. And along the way, what's verse 31 say? The churches in Galilee, Judea, Samaria, enjoy peace, keep on growing and enjoying the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Now, how can we summarize the conversion events that happened in Saul's life? Well, let me try it this way, and I'm sure I won't get them all. But we can say this at least. Having seen the Lord and entrusted himself to Christ as his Savior, he now seizes every moment that the Lord gives him to speak a word about Christ. He does it in Damascus till he's driven out. And then he keeps right after it in Jerusalem until the Jews there get after him. He kind of captures the essence of a little kid's song that has these words. I don't have to wait until I'm grown up to be what Jesus wants me to be. Do you have to wait any longer to be what Jesus wants you to be? Do you have to have the perfect scenario in front of you before you can take a step of faith? That's hardly what you see in the life of Saul. He really embodies, I think, the familiar saying, bloom where you're planted. Uh, or let me cast it another way. Maybe he would say he'd been given lemons as his life's experience, and he's going to make lemonade. So what do we see happening in his life over the course of these verses? Christ comes to him in a blaze of light, exposes Saul's self-righteousness and his attempts to live life out of his own resources brings him to a screeching halt. And in an instant, Saul turns on the spot from trusting in his own uh, record, his own abilities, to trusting in Jesus to work in and through him. He's not relying on his track record. He's trusting in Christ for Christ to live his life through a very flawed vessel like Saul. And so what motivates this exuberance? Well, I think at least these kinds of convictions. God has come to Saul and he has saved him through Christ and has spared his eternal soul from damnation. That's the first thing. Saul gets that. He's also been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He's been filled with the Spirit, so he's enabled to new, live a new life. He's not depending on his own resources, how he feels about things. He's trusting the word of Christ to move him on. He's placed his ultimate source of confidence and joy in his relationship with Jesus. And so for him... To live is Christ, and to die, if it happens, is gain. Christ is Lord, and he's commissioned him with a very simple command. 
make my name known in all the earth. And he's deeply satisfied with the prospect of contributing to the glory of God the world over, wherever the Lord may take him. And are not Saul's convictions a challenge and an encouragement to any believer like you? Are you living out of your own resources or are you trusting Christ to live his life through you? And what we find here is that the Lord leads his people so he can, they can become the blessing he intends them to be. This is not Saul's doing this is the Lord's plan working out in his life. So let's just review. Left unchecked, your heart will take you from bad sin to even worse sin. Thankfully, the Lord will let you go only so far before he intervenes because he's got a better plan than you wallowing in your sin. God positions believers to share their faith with those that he intends to save. And the Lord has given you the Holy Spirit and opportunities to tell them that Jesus is the Son of God. In his book, Don't Waste Your Life, John Piper makes some comments about his own development uh, in walking with the Lord and learning to live by faith. And he says that it wasn't always plain that he ought to be pursuing God's glory. Uh, as a matter of fact, it created kind of a problem in his life because he thought to himself, well, if I pursue God's glory, then I'm going to be bored. Why would I want to give myself all out to Jesus? If he takes me on this path that, you know, there's not much to it. And then he came across a verse that says, where Jesus says, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. In other words, Piper reasons this way. It's better to lose your life than to waste it. If you live gladly to make Christ known to others, your life will perhaps be hard. Perhaps you will face some risks. It may be the case that you'll even die in the service of Christ, and that would be a tragedy. But Piper says this, treasuring life above Christ is the tragedy. So give your life to him, fully. The Lord leads us where he wants us to go so we can be the blessing he intends us to be. Lord, we ask you to bless your word to us. We thank you that we can come and enjoy this meal that reminds us of your sacrifice for us. Help us to do it with renewed joy because you're so good to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.